This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and European culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Well, As I record this, England are through to play Italy in the final of the European Championship of countries that handled COVID the worst. Seriously, though, it's a brilliant achievement, isn't it? A brilliant achievement for cultural Marxism, for one thing, and it heaps even more ridicule on Lee Anderson, the Tory MP for Ashfield in Nottinghamshire, who boycotted England during the Euros over the players' decision to take uh, the knee before matches. Anderson, who is an idiot, said the team risked alienating what he called traditional supporters. Traditional supporters, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? If you've got a dog with you, it's probably started barking after hearing a loud whistling sound there. All this talk of ordinary decent people and traditional supporters. It's funny, isn't it? These people don't think that we can see them, but we do see them. We know what you're on about. Lee Anderson said, for the first time in my life, I will not be watching my beloved England team while they are supporting a political movement whose core principles aim to undermine our very way of life. Never mind, Lee, I'm sure there will be another England final in 50 years or so when you are 117. Um, The rest of us have loved watching England at this tournament. It's been 
tricky at times, hasn't it? But overall, it's been a, a privilege, although, of course, there have been some cringe moments, the awarding of the penalty against Denmark, the, the, the way the penalty was taken against Denmark, and, and also the way that people say, we've deserved this after all the country's been through. Well, other countries have been through the same thing, you know. I mean, it's COVID didn't just confine itself to the bit between Land's End and John O'Groats. It's not contracted COVID by eating roast Sunday dinners or watching old episodes of Only Fools and Horses on Dave or singing songs by Skinner and Badil and the Lightning Seeds. Everyone had it. Everyone suffered. But not everybody's had the team that we've got or the team that Italy have got. And that's why England and Italy were in the final. There have been a lot of moments to love during this tournament. And I'm going to tell you about my favourite one at the end of this episode. Uh, but first, we've got two wonderful guests for you to enjoy. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce John Kampfner, fine journalist, broadcaster, author of several books, including Blair's Wars, and most recently, Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. He's written a powerful piece in this week's New European on vaccine diplomacy, vaccine rivalry, vaccine wars. But first, John, you're in Germany at the moment, you're in Berlin. How is England's surprising competence at a major football tournament being received in Berlin? I would say, Steve, it's being received quizzically. I mean, they kind of scratch their heads. You know, when Germany does well in football, they don't kind of go into these sorts of orgies of self-indulgent, flag-waving nonsense that we do. They just sort of get on with it and think, oh, yeah, well, that's nice. And when they get kicked out, as um, we semi-stylishly did uh, a week ago, they just scratch their heads and say, time to change the manager. But they, they don't go through these great... I think they just assume that they do reasonably well and they don't have to have all these uh, years of, um, of pain and waiting and hurt, to coin a phrase. Yes, yes. I mean, we we will turn to your, your piece in this week's uh, New European in, in, a, in a second, but just preempting a future piece. We were talking the other day about what happens to English politicians... Uh, and politicians in general, I guess, when England, when, when their teams, national teams do well or badly in football tournaments. Does, do you think there will be a, a football bounce for Boris Johnson at the end of this? Well, I'm so old, Steve, that I remember John Major back in 1996 uh, in those Euros when uh, England lost on penalties to you-know-who. And uh, he was um, hoping and assuming that England would win or at least get to the final. And then he would call a September or October general election, which he thought he would square up reasonably well against Tony Blair. And then England got kicked out in, in the semis and major delayed until May uh, 1997. And, and the rest is massive Blair majority history. Um, so football does have a big effect. And Boris Johnson, who was slagging off Raheem Sterling and everybody else for taking the knee and all the usual nationalistic, bigoted stuff that influences him the whole time. He had to do a quick role reversal, get out the uh, flag of St George. But the question now, I suppose, is whose flag is it? Is it the flag of multicultural, uh, cosmopolitan England or Britain, as we used to call it, um, sort of at ease with the world? Or is it the nasty curtain-twitching, small islandness that Boris Johnson, with his Rule Britannia politics, in which he's probably sitting in the bath, that's a horrible thought, waving his flag and singing Rule Britannia and imagining that he's Winston Churchill. And if he thinks that these footballers, even if they're not quite his cup of tea, 
can deliver that for him. He'll, he'll milk it for all it's worth. God, I've mixed a lot of metaphors there, cups of tea and milking and everything else, but I think you get my point. Singing in the bath, it'd be very interesting to uh, to, to see what happens um, if there is a Downing Street reception uh, waiting at the uh, uh, at the end of this and uh, and whether words are exchanged about what Boris Johnson said at the start of the tournament. Uh, and indeed, is you know, he can just, um, Marcus Rashford can plan out the next um, six months for him, I, I would guess as well. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly sort of sceptical on that. I mean, I think I mean, you can imagine Gareth Southgate with his waistcoat. Everybody will be meticulously polite yes. towards him and about him. And absolutely, he will get a bounce. It sticks in the craw as far as I'm concerned, uh, with all the sort of Brexit overtones. The only So he will definitely get a bounce. The only question is how steep will that bounce be and how sustainable will it be because it coincides with this absolutely monumental experiment in opening everything up uh, during the last throes or not necessarily the last throes of COVID. If everything goes very, very badly this summer, and of course we hope it doesn't in human terms, then that will offset any bounce he's, he's going to get from the football. Well, that, I mean, that leads into your, your piece, doesn't it? And the ludicrously named Freedom Day is nearly upon us. You've written about vaccines and, uh, and the spreading vaccines, sharing vaccines around the world. How is this, our idea to drop COVID prevention measures, how is that going in the rest of Europe, do you think, and around the world? Well, as far as Europe is concerned... They, I mean, where I am in Germany, they've got an incredibly dim view of Johnson. They've had it for a very long time, notwithstanding the the great success, and it was on the provision of vaccines earlier on this year by the UK, in contrast to the European Commission, which sort of screwed it up. There is just a view that Johnson isn't a serious individual and his handling of COVID has been terrible, as it has. I mean, Britain has one of the highest death rates uh, in, in the developed world. So the fact that he's doing this, they just think, well, that's his. But obviously it's got to read across because with borders far more porous and there's so much pressure on politicians to open things up and particularly open things up for travel. And as far as Europe's concerned, it's not that they're all clamouring to come to Britain. Um, Britain's tourism rate is, is not that great. They will want to be going to Spain, to Italy, to Greece, to Portugal. And there they mingle with Brits and others who've got the Delta variant, whether or not they're symptomatic. And that's when it then gets repatriated. So these figures, this absolute explosion in figures is going to hit Europe again. The the European vaccination rates are still lagging behind Britain. They're not lagging behind nearly as much as they were. In Britain, it's just over 50% double vaxxed in in Germany, it's just over 40%. So there is going to, there is a catching up and the rates are much faster on a day-by-day basis here now. So uh, in a way, the Johnson experiment, um, just by the nature of travel, is also going to be their experiment as well. So everybody's going to be affected by it. But because Britain is under no constraints now, it's outside the European Union, it feels it can do what it wants. But I mean, the bigger question, which is what, you know, I was dealing with in, in, in this in this long uh, piece, uh, originally, which was commissioned by Chatham House, the, the think tank, looking at this whole question of what has the, to use old language, what is the West, what is the West doing in terms of provision 
of vaccines for the emerging economies? And the answer is virtually nothing. And it is an absolute shocker. I mean, African uh, vaccination rates are around 2%. And here we are, that's on first dose. And here we are talking about, oh, they've got 65, they've got 70, they've got 75, who's winning, who's coming in second. So many parts of the world are completely exposed with public health systems that are either languishing or pretty much non-existent. Meantime, we in, and it's not just Britain, it's the European Union too, it's the United States, it's Canada, it's, it's other countries, are hoarding vaccines and talking about third doses in the autumn. And what we should be doing is giving them through this facility called COVAX, which is this multinational facility originally drawn up by the World Health Organization to ship vaccines um, around the world to Latin America, to uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and Africa. And the original COVAX plan was only to vaccinate 20% mm. of the world's population. And even on that unambitious target, it's lagging woefully behind. And not only is that a moral outrage, but it's, it's also doesn't help solve the problem. Because as I said before, with porous borders, you know, what goes around comes around. Was, was, a, was this kind of, I mean, it's almost a trickle down approach, wasn't it? It was COVAX was always going to rely on rich countries' willingness to share their doses. Was, was that ever going to work? And, you know, it, it seems to me that at a time when large sections of well, Britain and Europe are at each other's throats, America and China are at each other's throats, America and Russia are at each other's throats. I mean, there's not much international cooperation going on, is there? Was this, is this, was this doomed from the start or has it come as a surprise that, that this isn't working? Yeah, I mean, that's the framework for, for this piece I've written, systemic rivalry. Mm. In, in other words, if you have a situation exactly as you've just described it, in which the big powers are deeply suspicious of each other. I mean, even during the Cold War, um, there was greater collaboration on health emergencies between the Soviet Union and, and the United States than there is now between the various powers. And the problem is on COVAX, is that we're in this era, not just of suspicion and rivalry, but a vaccine nationalism mm. in which if you are going to give a vial of um, AstraZeneca or Sputnik or Sinovac or um, whichever one it is, Pfizer, governments want to advertise it. So you might, you'll remember that when the Oxford AstraZeneca was uh, nearing its completion in terms of trials, Johnson wanted to get them to put Union Jacks on each packet. And thank God the uh, pharma company told him to take a running jump. But I mean, in Europe, um, von der Leyen and Macron wanted to have put on crates of COVAX vaccines coming from the European Union the Euro European Union flag with the ridiculous uh, title, the, the ridiculous sort of um, slogan, Team Europe. Um, you can see that Macron's obviously learned that at business school or, or something. And, you know, and when the Chinese or the Russians, when the Russians flew in a whole bunch of vaccines to Slovakia, and we're not, you know, we're talking right in the heart of the European Union, not a, not a, uh, not a developing world country. There was a whole ceremony at this provincial airport 
you know, with Russian flags and the deputy prime minister rocks up and thanks them profusely and this sort of thing. And China's doing it all over the place. So, yeah, there is no sense of we just give it because it's a good thing. It is we give it. And what are we going to get in return? Are we going to get trade deals? Are we going to get your raw materials? You know, are you going to vote for us in the United Nations next time something crops up? So we are we are in the midst and maybe one shouldn't be surprised, but it's worth noting we're in the midst of one of the most cynical approaches which authoritarians and democracies are equally adopting at the time of the most urgent need. I mean, America is is crucial to this sad story, isn't it? And, you know, obviously we know that the denial and, and the stupidity and the rage of Donald Trump has resulted in a, a lot of the those 605,000 deaths uh, that they've had. Is Joe Biden doing any better than Boris Johnson? Is he, he's been he's been out of vaccine by Russia and China, surely, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, so far, America has given still virtually nothing. Yeah. I mean, Biden is hugely different to Trump in so many ways. He isn't going around offending and insulting countries and proclaiming America first. He isn't um, slagging off the World Health, World Health Organization as a tool of China and uh, attempting to cut off American funding for it, which had that gone ahead would have been absolutely crucial. And of course, Biden has reversed that. So on so many levels, there is a much more cooperative approach. And Biden also put forward this idea to the surprise of big pharma companies of waiving um, patent restrictions on vaccines so that other countries could develop their own uh, versions of it. Now, he did that partly in the knowledge that the, the big vaccine countries, the UK, Germany, Switzerland and others, would try to veto it. Um, so in a way, it would just make America look good, whatever happened to it. But maybe that's a little bit Cynical, but there's a lot of need for all kinds of of, um, of things for the world to come together. Um, so, in a way, it's a question of whether you look at this as half empty or half full. It, he is not going out of his way to be obstructive in the way that Trump has been, but mindful of his own voters, he's been absolutely clear that priorities one to ten is vaccin- is vaccinating America's own. But I mean, don't forget, I mean, America was in absolutely dire straits six months ago um, in terms of COVID. And the American internal vaccination process has been completely turned around in the last six months. So I kind of can't hold it against politicians who obviously depend on votes in democracies, at least, to want to vaccinate their own. But there does come a point when you think, right, we're making pretty good progress. We've got to apportion a certain proportion um, each month to other countries. That's all people were asking for. And that hasn't happened. But, you know, there is a slightly there is a, a potential not solution, but there is a potential good side to this, which is the particularly Africa and developing nations. They can play this rivalry. You know, I mean, if China is trying to flog its vaccine, whereas Russia, America, Europe, particularly when production increases, well, I mean, you know, why don't the Af- why doesn't Africa, why doesn't Asia, why doesn't Latin America simply say, fine, you, you want to play the market, we'll play the market. Hmm. And, um, you know, we're not going to be grateful or, or whatever. And we're not going to abide by your terms. You know, come and, you know, sell your wares to us. Tell us, you know, what's in it for us to take your, to take your vaccine. And increasingly, and it's fascinating, that may well be what's going to happen.
and that might be the yeah i mean it's a, it's a weird solution isn't it that might be uh, that that might actually be a, a sign of some hope because i mean the the one of the many things that leapt out for me in this in this incredible piece uh, is the fact that africa imports 99% of the vaccines uh, yeah. that it needs africa that that's that's the the main uh, area of, of worry I, i'm guessing latin america too central america is is under vaccine right yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Haiti, where the president's just been assassinated. Yes. I've been told not a single, not a single vaccine has been delivered, um, which must be pretty much right at the bottom of the scale. But Haiti is pretty much at the bottom of the scale of everything. So there's such a link between stability, infrastructure, poverty, um, wealth divide, corruption. I mean, all the pre-existing social and economic divisions around the world, both between countries and within countries, have been played out by COVID. And yeah, again, probably it would have been too much to ask that this would actually be uh, a force for the world coming together. In so many ways, it's the reverse. And as I say, I mean, it's, you know, fine. Then don't, you know, I mean, the Americans and the Europeans can no longer and should no longer assume allegiance from certain countries. Why should they? Because in their time of need, if you weren't there to help, you know, why should you, you know, vote for the United States or France or Britain or whatever in the United Nations? So in a way, I hope this will be a wake-up call for, for, for the West because we've done nobody any favours. Well, it certainly needs to be. That's terrific. That's John Kampfner, his powerful piece about the vaccine war is in this week's New European. If you'd like to read more from John and enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at the New European .co.uk slash subscribe. Thanks, John. Pleasure, Steve. John Kampfner there. Bonnie Greer will be joining us uh, in a moment. But first, it's the fifth birthday of the New European this week. And we thought we'd ask you, what will the New European be reporting on in five years' time? This is what listeners to the podcast said. Alistair Curry said, uh, after our reporting on Brexit, uh, you will be reporting on ex-Brit for Scotland. Uh, Nicholas Bannon said in five years' time, the new European will be reporting on Britain's descent into totalitarianism. I'm not sure it'll take five years, uh, Nicholas. Uh, Chris Walford says you'll re be reporting on the spectacular fall of Boris Johnson. Well, it's coming home, Chris, it's coming home. Let's just uh, remind ourselves once again of the headline on Ian Dunst's Boris Johnson piece last week. Let me just say, it, Boris Johnson's fall will come and it will be swift and brutal. Just love saying that. That's that's even better uh, than uh, watching uh, Raheem Sterling score for me. A couple more. What will be the new European? What we'll be reporting on uh, in five years' time? The Pamela Roberts says the demise of the Tory Party and how monies hidden offshore have been exposed and clobbered for tax that was due. And Andrew Richard Jones says, I suspect you'll be reporting on the huge success of Brexit. The Vote Leave backers are dis delighted to see the UK divided, a major NATO member weakened, and the UK's international reputation wrecked. It's exactly why they funded the enterprise. And as for the people of the UK, I wonder when they'll have worked out they were conned. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, 
Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now on the New European Podcast, it's my enormous pleasure to welcome the writer, broadcaster, journalist, all-round polymath and good egg, Bonnie Greer. Hello, Bonnie. Hey, how are you, Steve? I'm very well. All the better for hearing from you. Now, I know that you are not a huge soccer fan, but I did want to ask you whether you've connected with this England team in a, in a different way, as many of us have during the, the, the Euros. Does it mean something, you know, at, at this particular time in, in this country's history when of the 11 players who started the semi-final, there's only four of them who didn't have a parent or grandparent who was a migrant into this country? <laughs> First of all, are you calling it soccer for me? I'm because calling it soccer for football. you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Just in case you started talking about the, the Kansas exactly. City Chiefs or the NFL or something. No, actually, because I tell you, soccer is until maybe 20 years ago, it was a game played mostly by girls at school. So, I mean, I played it like, you know, thousands of years ago at school and most women did. It was the, it was the game. It was the competitive game that we were uh, allowed to play. So um, it doesn't have, I think until about 20 years ago, uh, David Beckham really helped it a lot to give it some kind of uh, traction. And of course, traction means that it becomes a boy's game in America. And so therefore it's, you know, people much longer, younger than me are really attached to what's going on now. It's quite amazing to see how it's, it has developed in in America. I, I mean, I remember mm. going to going to America thirty years ago, and even even mm. in New York, you would struggle to find bars where major finals were on. And and now you go to New York, Chicago, New Orleans, and it's it's kind of everywhere. They start drinking at ten o'clock in the morning and mm. all this kind of stuff. Um, you live in central London. I'm imagining it's getting pretty rowdy before and after the England matches. And then you've you've written about the COVID protest marches in central London in this week's New European. What are your thoughts when you see these large bodies of unmasked people all mixing together? Are you are you horrified or are you excited that things are coming a bit back to normal? You know, it's kind of scary in a way because these are people who don't have a lot of information, Steve. And you can look at them. I mean, they're not bad people. They're not evil people. They don't have any leadership. They don't have any focus except negative focus. And we're all frustrated. I mean, I've been locked down for almost two years. I mean, my husband's in another country, you know? So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, sometimes I want to go out there and scream with them too, but there isn't any... We don't have any leadership to explain to people why this is being done to them or what's happening. And that's because it doesn't behoove the conservatives to actually explain anything to anybody. So it's good that people stay in turmoil as far as a lot of them in the party are concerned, because then it keeps their uh, there's their cultural culture war agenda going, which began with Brexit, let's face it. And so this all helps them. It's, uh, I'm worried because um, people don't seem to understand or be told in a way that they understand that this virus is something that science doesn't understand yet. That's why it's called Nouvelle. They don't know what it is. It's the first time that this has appeared in our species. So what they wanna do is just try to keep everybody as safe as possible to see what happens. And you you get the, the sort of feeling 
and I know it's in some conservative circles, and it's certainly in the GOP, that there that maybe a, a people have to achieve a thing called herd immunity, which if your population is homogenous, that semi makes sense, but mm. we're all different kinds of people. You you can't do that here. Right. I mean, it's really interesting to get your perspective because obviously your, you know, your life, a lot, so much of your life has been in the theatre, which has been damaged mm. so much by COVID. You're involved with mm. museums, which have been closed by COVID. Mm. It just, I mean, to me, it feels like there are two things. It, it feels like it's a bit hasty to end the restrictions and, and send Britons, as John Campton has just been talking about, on holiday throughout Europe when we're at the centre of this. And then it does feel like, as you say, we're heading for a, some kind of culture war between people who are masked up and people who are not masked up. It's, uh... you know, well, it behooves, you know, it helps the, you know, papers who, so the tabs that support the Tories and other papers to do, it, it keeps people busy. It's being done in the United States and they're borrowing a lot of stuff from the United States now, which is dangerous because this country is a lot smaller. And so uh, a lot of things can become much more intensified even than they are in the United States, which is like quite crazy at the moment, but um, it, it's a, we're at a very dangerous moment and we don't have any leadership. So that's the problem. You've written a couple of times for us about how COVID isn't just damaging people's bodies, but it's kind of altered people's minds. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, if we look at, at history, Steve, we can see that a pan, pandemics have always affected human behavior. It, it makes sense because our bodies are attacked. And so, and we can't control the thing that is attacking us. So it, it's normal. And, you know, if you look at the Middle Ages, you see the flagellants walking around, beating themselves up with whips and stuff as a way to get rid of the uh, the Black Death and, and all of that. And I think it's affecting us in the same kind of way in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of irrational conversation out and about. And I think we're not totally aware of it yet because we are in an age where um, we're being driven by algorithms. We're being driven by social media. We're being shaped by social media, which pushes the conflict parts of our brain. It doesn't push the, the parts of our brain where we, we kind of are together, it pushes the conflict parts. So that's being ramped up. And then we have this virus, which nobody knows where it came from. Nobody knows how to control it. Nobody knows its long-term effects because they're going to be. We don't know how, you know, how to protect the populations that are vulnerable to it. We just, there's so much that we don't know. And we don't have a government and that comes on as FDR did in the 30s. This should come on every day, six o'clock when people are sitting down to eat or whenever, whatever people do, 15 minutes should be the prime minister of the day saying, you know, very personally, this is the latest I've discovered. I don't know where we're heading or I think I know where we're heading. You know, we, we need to all stay safe. Instead, we got this joker and you know, this whole thing, I really got upset and I've never been upset about you know, sort of the limits they put on. But this I thought was really wrong. They, uh, for the finals, the, uh, the government, I guess the health secretary has said that the pubs can stay open for 45 minutes after closing, I guess. And you think to yourself, I'm not a pub person, so I'm saying this as just looking at human beings. And you know, you think to yourself, why 45 minutes? 
Why not 55? Why not 15? Why not five? Why this time limit? And why tell people this? Why don't you just say we have to have, we, you know, the pubs will stay open. The time limit is control and it makes people antsy. It makes them angry. It makes them nervous. I'm not going to be in a pub on finals night, but I'm angry about it. Why can't you just stay in there if the pubs are going to be open? And this is the kind of, you know, small town village control that this government is wreaking on people and, and it's making people sick. And so you do see people in the streets walking around with, with yellow stars, which I could really actually beat up people for that. And, and, you know, I just, I mean, physically attack them for that. And, and, um, all kinds of stupid stuff. Because they're being driven. They're partly being driven nuts. You, I mean, you, you've written this week about Chris Whitty and the video that we've yeah. seen of him being manhandled. I, know, I mean, that's part of a legal case now, so we can't really get in the, into the mm. ins and outs of that. Yes. But what, what happens when people, because people approach you in the streets, right? What, yeah, what, they do. what happens when they do? Well, I, you know, like I said, I purposely don't know my telephone number because people actually ask <laughs> you. Can I call you? Now, I don't like lying, you know, and saying, and I don't want to say no, because you don't know what people are going to do if you say no to them. So I looked them in the eye and I said, I don't know my telephone number. And they believe me. And then they said, well, can I take a picture with you? And I say, which is what happened with Lawrence Fox, by the way. And I say, yes, of course. And you take a picture and you know, it's kind of stupid, actually, as I'm thinking about it, because I don't know where the picture is going to go to. Like Lawrence Fox just used my picture. You know, you you have to be careful. You know, so I'm walking down the street around here and uh, this guy called my name and people people wave to me from buses and they call my name because they think they see me on television a lot, which I'm not. But anyway, that's another discussion. So then <laughs> this guy calls my name. And so I'm looking around and I smile at him and I wave and he said, you know, you're a traitor. And I said, I thought, well, I, I thought I'd make a joke out of it. I said, well, you know, I, I used to be a citizen. I used to have three nationalities. So which one am I a traitor to? <laughs> and uh, well, he just goes on and on about, you know, you take money from the BBC, you take money from Sky. And, and he was serious. And, um, you know, I kept moving. And I and he was okay, you know. He was drinking out of a can, so I guess that was his afternoon, you know. But people who are hundred times more prominent than me, like Chris Whitty, I mean, that, that was assault. And I didn't, I didn't, you know. People were uh, talking about it online. I looked at the guy and I thought he doesn't realize that he's like he's assaulted somebody. Mm. And he did, but he didn't, and you could tell he didn't. So. That's the craziness of where we are right now. It's, uh, well, it's a crazy time, isn't it? I mean, Boris Johnson mm. is remains to me inexplicably popular after the disastrous way that he's handled all of this. Maybe he's even going to get a bounce out of the football as well. A piece you wrote for us maybe about a month ago, a couple of months mm. maybe, you wrote that Britain is fatally addicted to people like Boris Johnson, two toffs. Is, is, what do you mean by that? It's what I was thinking about today about Englishness. You know, there's a piece in another magazine about, you know, Englishness. And I, you know, I tweeted today, but what if you aren't English? You know, what if you aren't English? Do you have to actually be in this discussion? And anyway, I thought the country was called the United Kingdom. You know what? So it becomes, and it's always been this way, always been this way, England 
as the most, the biggest, the most powerful. And what really makes me nervous, I mean, Americans refer to Great Britain as England. Now, British people referring to Great Britain as England, it's not England. And this idea of Englishness, which, which, which uh, Boris Johnson entertains is quite dangerous because it, it creates a universe in which there are tropes like him, like, like yesterday, people were saying, what's he dressed up like? And I said, he looks like one of Queen Victoria's prime ministers. I mean, that is on purpose. So it's constantly to reinforce this idea of not only Englishness, but upper class Englishness, the betters. And it's always deep, I've, I've found in my three decades here, that deep down into every British person's psyche is either a fight against the betters or an alignment with the betters. It's always that thing and it's deeply embedded and it's um, it's quite scary. And so so what 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 uh, what Boris Johnson plays on is that idea or that feeling of, of British people and the betters. So he he will come in. I mean I was at a a function at the British Museum once. I mean, I came late. I didn't know Boris Johnson was going to even be there because I wouldn't have been there. And he he stands in the middle of the great court and he starts speaking in Greek. Now, you know, the people who were there were delighted. They didn't know what he was saying, but they were delighted that he could speak Greek. That was something that they couldn't speak. Of course, his Greek was ancient Greek. And somebody who was standing next to me said, this is awful. He's like mixing up all, but you know, nobody, nobody knew that in that crowd. And that was the whole point of the whole thing. He could speak Greek. He could speak very, he can speak French. He speaks it like Winston Churchill did deliberately with an English accent. That's deliberate. So it's all of this kind of stuff that we're moving into right now, Steve, that is very dangerous. Shall we shall we end by talking about another big blonde baby then? Because obviously oh I, I think we I don't think I can we can have a conversation without mentioning Donald Trump. Uh, I mean he's still looming large, isn't he? Like this horrible shadow over half of the your country. He's suing Twitter now, he's suing Facebook, he's suing Google, I saw yesterday. Maybe he'll he'll sue you next. Or maybe you should you yeah. should actually you should sue his barber, I would say. Well, well, actually, but he should give an award to his tailor, as my husband says. It's like this big fridge of a man who's in these gangsters. But we can't ignore Trump because, let me give you the equivalent. It's like if Nigel Farage was able to go on Twitter and get a mob to march on the House of Commons and hold its siege while the MPs are sort of like scurrying for safety the police are trying to hold, you know, the Mets trying to hold them off and the, and the police who guard the, the houses of parliament trying to hold off this mob who could be armed, who could be high, nobody knows. So what you do with a guy like that is you keep him off social media. You just keep him off. And the second thing is you can't stop talking about him because he still has people in the country who are saying Nigel Farage is right. We need to come together and do what Nigel Farage says. So that's Donald Trump in the United States right now. I don't. I'm, I'm, I don't think we would have been far off that if uh, maybe if Parliament had voted for a second referendum, that would have uh, happened. What do you think happens next to to Donald Trump? Do you think he 
Do you think he'll try to run again? Donald Trump is essentially, he's got two sides. I'm going to write about that this week. One is that he's extremely lazy. Donald Trump is lazy. Nobody, he doesn't do anything. Everybody does everything for him. Everybody knows that and they've been knowing it forever. The other thing is that he's a father's boy. He's a daddy's boy. His daddy told him, uh, if you lose, you're nothing. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it because it was rougher than that. And so for Donald Trump, losing is an existential crisis. It's not just, okay, I lost and, you know, I lost and I lost the house. I lost the lower house. I lost the upper house. I lost the executive. No, this is an existential crisis for Donald Trump. He can't let this go. So uh, we're going to see him, uh, whether he runs in, uh, whether he runs or not, if he does, he's going to get the same coalition against him that Biden was able to get together in 2020. And that's going to be the coalition of African-American women, white suburban women, and and uh, and Hispanic women. We got rid of him and we're going to do it again. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Bonnie Greer. Her fantastic piece about Chris Whitty and the pandemic people is in this week's New European. If you'd like to read more from Bonnie and enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Thank you, Bonnie Greer. Thank you, Steve. And finally, on the New European podcast, it's the Hall of Shame. It's our home for bad politicians, for Brexiteers, hoist by their own petard, things that just annoy me generally. And in the Brexiteers hoist by their own petard uh, section, let's let's start with Alex Polizzi, TV's hotel inspector. She's in the Hall of Shame. And uh, uh, Alex Polizzi um, has been unable to find staff for her own uh, hotel in East Sussex. Uh, Consequently, she's working round the clock, taking food orders, serving drinks, doing the, the housekeeping. And of course, Alex Polizzi uh, was one of the people who said Brexit would be fine. And, and now she says, I'm like the turkey who voted for Christmas, she told the I newspaper. She said Brexit has caused us enormous problems with recruitment. We had forgotten how much we relied on these enthusiastic young professionals from hospitality schools across Europe. It's interesting use of the we there, isn't it? I'm not sure we, as in the people listening to this, uh, had forgotten about how much we relied on those enthusiastic young professionals. It's certainly a far cry from pre-referendum times uh, when all Alex Polizzi had to serve up uh, instead of breakfast were glib one-liners like this one. She said, the new European Union... Uh, the European Union reminds me of an overpriced, badly run hotel. And all I can say to that is that a room at her new hotel uh, with her running around uh, doing everything costs £190 per night. Let's turn back to the football then. And, and, and I, you know, we, we've gone through this podcast. I, I do need to apologise to people who uh, don't support the England team for going on about the England team. I, I, you know, I know there's a lot of it about at the moment, but let's, uh, let's do it. Paul Joseph Watson, the right wing blogger. I'd like to put him in the hall of shame. June the 10th, he, he wrote this. England will exit Euro 2021 early if Gareth Southgate maintains his absurd take-a-knee stance. It divides the fans and demoralises the players. He considered a career as a psychic, Paul. And John Redwood is in the Hall of Fame uh, after the semi-final victory against Denmark. He tweeted this. Brilliant England win. 
great for the UK, great for the most ignored and understated country in our union. Even the BBC has to mention England today. Yeah, it's been ages, hasn't it, since England, the English team, English people, things that happened in England actually got a mention on the nine o'clock news. And I thought, I'm happy about it. You know, again, why is it great for the UK, John? Does John Redwood really imagine that in Glasgow and in Cardiff, they're they're going, well, you know, our own campaigns in the Euros were a bit disappointing. I don't really like England and the England fans that much, but hasn't Harry Maguire got a really cheeky smile? Just should we put three lines on? Do you, do you think they're, they're singing that in Glasgow and Cardiff, John? These people are idiots. And, and talking of idiots, it's the time to say, I lack, egad, harumph. It's on Widdicombe Corner. It's the magical time. Once again, when I mo- read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. And here we go. I want England to win, but I'm fed up with the relentless coverage dominating the TV schedules, press and general conversation, says Anne Widdicombe. Ditto the non-stop Wimbledon coverage with that awful coarse yelling mouth of Andy Murray. Great idea, isn't it, Anne? In future, maybe we should just play all sport in secret with the sound down to avoid upsetting Anne Widdicombe. You know, TVs have got mute buttons. TVs can be switched off. If only we could say the same of Anne Widdicombe. But I'm putting the lead candidate in the Hall of Shame this week, I'm putting Boris Johnson in it again, because my favourite moment of the Euros so far came at the end of that semi-final against Denmark, when the camera caught Gareth Southgate celebrating with England fans. And Gary Neville, who was doing the analysis on ITV, he said this. He said, the standards of leaders in this, this country in the last couple of years has been poor, And looking at that man, Gareth Southgate, there, that's everything a leader should be. Respectful, humble, telling the truth and genuine. I wonder who Gary Neville could have been thinking about when he says the standard of leaders in this country in the last couple of years has been poor. Let's take take it piece by piece. He said Gareth Southgate was respectful. And in contrast to Gareth Southgate, our Prime Minister's a guy who goes to France and puts his feet up on the furniture in the Elysee Palace, who goes to Myanmar and he recites a colonial era poem in front of the local dignitaries, which so appalls everybody that the ambassador has to get him to stop. Gary Neville said Southgate was humble and in contrast to Gareth Southgate, our Prime Minister's a guy who wrote when he was a kid that his ambition was to be the world king and he carries on that way now. He takes free holidays without asking who's paid for them because he thinks that he's his birthright. Remember this quote? You just don't care for anything because you're spoiled. You have no care for money and everything. That's what his own wife says about him. And Gary Neville praised Gareth Southgate for telling the truth. And in contrast to Gareth Southgate, you know, this is, we've got Prime Minister who lied and lied about the people he now calls our European friends. Remember when he said the EU wanted to standardise the size of condoms? Well, they didn't. And the, the Italians who were playing, uh, who England are playing on, on Sunday, he said the Italians wanted smaller condoms because their penises were smaller than everybody else's in Europe, which, you know, I don't have any experience of this, but I'm guessing it's rubbish too. And he wrote that Braun Cocktail Chris were going to be banned in Europe. They weren't. And that British fishermen were going to be made to wear helmets. You know, they, they weren't made to make helmets. Although I'd like to think that if Boris Johnson dares to 
come and talk to some fishermen, they would like to put helmet on and, and not him. And Boris Johnson said that compulsory European ID cards were coming and they've not come. And he said that the EU was building a kilometre high Tower of Babel in Brussels and they weren't building it. And then there's the bus. And Gary Neville said Southgate was genuine. And in contrast to Gareth Southgate, we've got a Prime Minister who, before he appears on TV, he says it's showtime backstage. He says it's showtime. And he deliberately ruffles up his hair to look more blokey. And he says it's okay to boo England players once one week. And then the next week he takes his freebies to cheer them on when he wins. I'm proud of England's players. I'm proud of England's manager. But I'm ashamed of our Prime Minister. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thank you to John Kampfner. Thank you to Bonnie Greer. Thank you to, uh, to you for listening. And thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on wherever you listen to it. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.